Good afternoon. We're glad that you all are here with us. Uh, my name is Chris Wilson. I'm the pastor here. Just a few things uh, most of you know, but behind me on this wall, there's some water and coffee if you need it. And if you need the restrooms, you'll go all the way back up past the walkway where you come in and you go through the double doors. The second door on your right is the women's restroom and the third door on your right is the men's restroom if you need to make use of those facilities while we're here this afternoon. We're in the sixth of seven weeks of Lent leading up to Easter, and we're looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, and I hope if you've been following along with us, either here or listening online when you have a chance, uh, I hope, like me this week in preparing for this one, you've been encouraged that a lot of looking at Jesus' seven sayings from the cross is just the chance to see the beauty and the depth of his death for us. Like when I was getting ready for tonight, and I was putting scripture references in, I was like, I feel like I just said that. And I would look back and I'd be like, oh yeah, I said that two weeks ago, but we're going to say it again because so much of what our spiritual life is, is just a struggle to remember what Christ has done. So much of how we move forward in our life is either helped or hindered by our ability to recall what Jesus has done for us and what is now true of us if we've trusted in him. And so I hope over these past five weeks, six weeks tonight, and then our seventh and final week uh, next week that it's just been an encouraging season for you. We're going to be in John 19:30. If you've got your Bibles with you, either physical or on your phone, or if you need a physical one, there are some on the table to uh, my left and your right. You're free to hop up and grab one of those in a pen if you would like to take notes but we'll be in John 19:30. In his book The Three Edwards, Thomas B. Castain tells the story of Reynald III and his younger brother Edward. Reynald III was duke of what is now Belgium when Edward his younger brother overthrew him in a revolt. And Edward didn't kill his brother, but he did keep him in a room that he had custom built just for him, complete with windows and a door. It was a very comfortable setting for someone who was overthrown by their younger brother in a military coup. That's not normally how these things work. Usually you're dead. Edward told his brother that he could leave whenever he so desired, and once he left, he would have his title and his property returned to him. But there was only one problem, small or large, depending on your interpretation. Reynald III was grossly overweight, and his younger brother had built the doors and the windows just small enough that his brother could not fit through. And so if he would ever desire to leave, he could leave, but it would require Reynald to lose some weight. And Edward knew that his older brother had no self-control when it came to his appetite. So every day in between meals meant to keep him alive, Edward would send Reynald sweet treats. And Reynald never had the ability to say no. And so he would eat his meals and he would eat the treats. And he would eat the meals and he would eat the treats. And instead of losing weight, Reynald actually gained weight during this time. And when others would ask Edward about the cruel treatment of his brother, Edward's response was, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. After 10 years, once Edward was killed in battle, Reynald III was released, but he had so ruined his health that he lived less than a year before he himself died. That story is in a picture what has been true for everyone who has been born from Genesis 3 on. Rather than being captured at some point later in life, we are born enslaved to sin and we are ruled by the simple desires of our hearts. We find ourselves 
unable to muster the willpower to free ourselves from captivity. And daily, our soul's enemy, Satan, feeds us temptations that we are unable to deny. We cannot, like Reynald III, find the willpower to say no to what is before us in our natural, sinful state. Death stalks us, and we find ourselves, hopefully at some point, brought to a realization that we are indeed incapable of saving ourselves. We begin to realize there will have to be someone from the outside who sets us free. Not who simply slides us healthier snack options. We will need someone to come in and dismantle the room of our enslavement brick by brick to set us free and give us victory. And today we celebrate the one who in fact did live and did die and did rise again to secure our victory and set us free. Let's pray. Jesus, we celebrate tonight that we were born into sin and we were unable to save ourselves. And you pursued us with grace and with mercy and with truth and with love. You pursued us and you softened our resistance and you showed us through various ways that we would always be unable to save ourselves. And you brought us to a point where we responded to your invitation in faith and we trusted you by grace to redeem and to save us and to set us free. And so, Father, we want to live into the truth tonight that it is for freedom that you have set us free. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We have no outstanding debt to the flesh. But we are free because of the finished work of you, Jesus. Will we see it? Again, tonight, would it resonate deeply in our hearts and in our spirits? And would we walk out of these doors assured of the victory that you have won for us tonight? In Christ's name, amen. John 19.30, John says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tonight, like we've done in the previous five weeks and we'll do next week, we're going to look at first a challenge from what Christ says from the cross, a challenge for us to understand what Christ is accomplishing for us and how it affects our life today. And then we're also going to be drawn to look at a comfort that we find in Christ's words. And so we're going to start with the challenge tonight. And the challenge is this. All the work necessary for our salvation is done. The challenge to believe, the challenge to accept is that all the necessary work for us to be redeemed and saved and made righteous and given a new heart, it has all been completed in Christ. This is hard because we have been raised and shaped by a firm belief in some mix of the following. We've been raised and shaped by a firm belief perhaps in the Protestant work ethic. We've been raised and shaped by a firm belief or a firm call to be the one who pulls yourself up by your own bootstraps. We are enamored with the myth of the self-made man in America. And perhaps most damaging of all is the lie that has shaped us to a large degree, and it says that God helps those who help themselves. All of these maxims, whether philosophical or pragmatic, may play in the culture at large. They may be things that people will hang their hat on and say, this is how I understand life, or how I understand even the Christian 
faith, but they are dangerous, if not deadly, when it comes to how we understand our salvation and what of, in light of what Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is what Paul says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So today as we consider Jesus' word from the cross, we are challenged to accept that Christ's work was sufficient, and it is in no need of additional work by us to be effective. When Jesus cries, it is finished, there is nothing left over. It is all done in that moment. The price of our redemption is paid. Paul writes this. I'm going to give you two verses, two sections of Scripture, first from Romans and then from Galatians, where Paul labors to show to the church in Rome and to the church at Galatia that all of salvation, all of life in Christ is not a result of works. It's a result of grace and faith being given to us by God through Jesus. This is what Paul writes in Romans 3, 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith. Not works, but by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul makes it crystal clear in Romans 3, 21 through 28, and really throughout Romans, from Romans 1, 1 to the end of Romans 16. Salvation is a gift of grace given to us by God and all of our boasting about being worthy recipients is removed not because of the works we've done but because there were never going to be works that we could do to earn it in the first place so we don't boast in our works we boast in the finished work of Christ on our behalf that we then receive by faith and he goes on in Galatians 2 15 and 16, and then verse 21, he says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. I do not nullify the grace of God. And listen, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says if righteousness were a matter of works, if righteousness were a matter of the law, then there's no reason for Christ to have died in the first place. And here's the beauty of Galatians 2, 15, 16, and verse 21. You can go back in there and you can read that and almost like this. We ourselves were American Christians by birth and not Gentile sinners. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by being born in the American South where they grew up going to church their whole life, but they are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also at some point ourselves have to believe in Jesus Christ for ourselves in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by what our grandparents did and not by what our parents did and not by the money our aunt and uncle gave to the church, because by their works or the works of the law, none of us will be justified. We do not nullify the grace of God by banking our salvation on where we were born in a particular time period, in a particular region of a country where there is freedom of religion. For if that were how righteousness were to be obtained, then Christ died for no purpose. When Jesus says it is finished, we have nothing in our life, in our raising, in our pedigree to appeal to that would earn us the righteousness of God. There is only one way, and it is by accepting the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. In both Jesus' cry from the cross and Paul's writings, the Spirit of God is working to make it abundantly clear from Scripture that we cannot save ourselves. We will never hold sway over divine justice to the degree that we can have it be on our side, where for just a brief moment our good works outweigh our bad works, because outside of Christ all our works are bad. We can strive and we can posture and we can point to ourselves as worthy of God's love and affection, but in the end, it is all a waste of time that leads to death. The foundational and yet the hardest truth of the Christian for, for the Christian to embrace is that we will never contribute anything to our salvation. And even writing that for me, I was like, but this, but I do this. But surely there would be an exception made for how well I do this one spiritual discipline. We all have a desire to say that there is something that we are contributing to our salvation, that there is something that we could do that would show our worth to Christ. And over and over and over again from Scripture, we are reminded that we can't. We are reminded that if it were up to us, we would never be able to say it is finished because we would never fulfill the requirements of the law to the degree that we could be accepted in God's sight. This is so hard because in the depths of our heart, there runs a current of pride that will always feel empowered to stand even when the Spirit bids us bow our hearts in humble submission to God. A.W. Pink says regarding Christ's saying from the cross, what was finished? The work of atonement. And what is the value to us? This to the sinner? It is a message of glad tidings. All that a holy God requires has been done. Nothing is left for the sinner to add. No works from us are demanded as the price of our salvation. All that is necessary for the sinner is to rest now by faith upon what Christ did. Our justification, our right standing before God, our victory is all because of the finished work of Jesus. 
could it be that the reason so often the gospel doesn't seem like good news to us is because we're still working to earn our salvation and we're not resting in the cry of it is finished from the cross? I mean, Pink says this to the sinner is a message of glad tidings. When was the last time the gospel resonated as a message of glad tidings in the depths of your heart and your soul? There once was a Christian farmer who was worried about his unsaved friend who was a carpenter by trade. The farmer would faithfully share the good news of salvation by grace through faith, and each time he would share, the carpenter would insist that there must be some work he needed to do himself to experience the gift of eternal life. Finally, the farmer had an idea. He asked the carpenter to make a gate for him to use in his field. And the carpenter happily agreed and made the gate, and the farmer picked it up and went and put it in his field and arranged for the carpenter to come by the next morning to see his finished work being put to use. And as the carpenter approached, he saw the farmer standing by the gate with an axe. What are you going to do? asked the carpenter. I'm going to add a few cuts and strokes to your work, said the farmer. But there is no need for it. The gate is all right as it is. I did all that was necessary to it, said the carpenter. Paying his words no mind, the farmer lifted the axe and struck the gate over and over again until it was totally ruined. The carpenter cried out, look what you have done. You ruined my work. And the farmer locked eyes with the carpenter and responded, yes. And that is exactly what you are trying to do. You are seeking to nullify the finished work of Christ by your own miserable additions to it. So it is that we, when we attempt to add to the work of Christ, take away from the beautiful work of our Savior dying in our place and finishing the work that we wouldn't start and even if we did start, could never complete for ourselves. How many times on an average week do you find yourself standing by the finished work of Christ, axe in hand, ready to add just a few extra strokes to the already finished work. How many times do you ruin your enjoyment of the gospel because you're still trying to work to earn the salvation that is freely offered in Christ? And that's the challenge for us when we hear it said that Jesus cries out, it is finished. There is nothing for us to add. It is only for us to trust and believe. And here's the comfort when Jesus cries, it is finished, we see the end of our sins. When Jesus cries, it is finished, we are called to see and find comfort in Jesus' complete victory. Here is the cry that marks the end of our sins. And to understand what we mean by the end of our sins, we need to go back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus 16. It was under the Mosaic law that the people of Israel would celebrate a day of atonement annually. And it was during this day of mourning and repenting of sin that two goats would be brought to the high priest. And the first goat would be killed and its blood would be used to make atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar because they were in the presence of the sinful Israelites, but they were dedicated as holy objects for the worship and the adoration of God amidst, in the midst of the people of Israel. 
And then the second goat will be brought to the high priest. And this is what Moses records in Leviticus 16, 20 through 22 regarding the second goat. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. How many? Half their transgressions and three quarters of their sins? No, it was all of their transgressions and all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The scapegoat was the goat that had all of the sins of the nation of Israel confessed over it. And then what did they do? Did they keep the goat around to look at it, to marvel at all the sins that they had committed? Did they put the goat up on a pedestal and say, this is a reminder of all the sins that we've confessed? No. The command of God was to drive that goat out into the wilderness and turn that goat loose so that it would never make its way back into the Israelite camp. And A.W. Pink helps us understand how the second goat points to Christ making an end of sin for us when he says, this is A.W. Pink, Aaron came out of the tabernacle and laid both his hands upon the head of the second living goat, signifying an act of identification by which Aaron is the representative of the whole nation, identifying the people with it, acknowledging that its doom was what their sins merited, and that today corresponds with the hands of faith laying hold of Christ and identifying ourselves with him in his death. The goat bearing Israel's sins was taken into an uninhabited wilderness, and the people of God saw him and their sins no more. In type, this was Christ taking our sins and making an end of them. The cross of Christ, then, is the grave of our sins. There was a pastor whose teaching I sat under for a while, and he told the story of Trash Day being the favorite day for his kids in their neighborhood. They would get up that morning, they would wheel the trash can out to the corner, and then they would wait with anticipation by the door. And the trash men would come, and they would pick up that trash, and they would honk the horn, and the kids would wave, and they would cheer, and off the trash truck would go. Never once did his kids go chasing after the trash truck. The trash truck came to take the trash away, never to be brought back to that house, never to be sorted through, never to be worried over. It was taken to a remote place, dumped, and left there. And so it is that Christ makes an end of our sin at the cross. We still have to struggle with the reality of sin in us, as Paul writes in Romans 7, but the threat of punishment because sin is on us has been removed in Christ. It is finished. All threat of future punishment, gone. All threat of future condemnation, gone. All threat that at some point, in some way, there will be one sin in your life unaccounted for that would disqualify you from eternal life in Christ, gone. We do not go running after the trash truck of our sin saying, wait, I want to play in my sin a little more. We celebrate Jesus taking our sin and making 
an end of it. This is what Scripture says throughout. I want to read you just five, maybe six verses here of God confirming this with his own words. Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. The psalmist says, you, God, are the one who must atone for our sins. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Micah 7, 19b. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Not part, not half, not a percentage, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. First Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If all of these verses are true, and we would heartily say amen that they are, then the primary way we need to understand ourselves before God is as redeemed sons and daughters. If he has put an end to our sin in the finished work of Christ, then our primary way that we identify ourselves after coming to faith in Christ is not primarily as a sinner because he's put an end to our sin. And Peter says it so well. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is impossible, I won't say, it is highly unlikely that you will embrace living to righteousness if the primary way you identify yourself day in and day out is as one whose sins have not been made an end of. When God sees you in Christ, how does he see you? As one with Christ. Does he see you as a sinner any longer? Because he has made an end to our sins. There is victory in Jesus. It would do us all a world of good if we just lived like it. I know it can sound trite and it can sound cliche and we're not asking you, I'm not asking you to always have a smile on your face because life is hard and we live in a broken and in a fallen world. But there should be a current of joy that runs through the life of a believer because we are now not primarily known by our sins as we were before we came to faith in Christ, but we are now known and identified as one with Christ because of the finished work of Christ. And it should fundamentally change how we approach our days if it really is finished. 
if all the work is done and all the sin has been removed and made an end of in our life, it should fundamentally change how we approach our days. But often we live just as dejected and just as hopeless as those who are without faith in the world. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How can Christ offer rest to those who labor and are heavy laden? Christ can offer rest because he knew that he would cry in victory, It is finished. So today, if you are laboring under the burden of trying to work for your salvation, Come to Jesus who has finished the work for you. Today, if you are weighed down, staggering under the heavy burdens of your sins, come to Jesus who has finished the work for you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus doesn't say that the work for us ends when we come to him. But he changes the nature of our work. From work that is burdensome and from work that is tiring to work that is joyful and to work that is life-giving because it is work for the kingdom and work for the gospel that is coming from a place of love and acceptance because of who Christ is and what he's done. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm going to close by just reading this from the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. That's what it says. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. He has finished the work. He has cried out in victory that it is finished. And now he alone offers us rest. Let's ask the Spirit to give us the power and the courage and the humility to respond in faith to God's promises. Let's pray.